This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And before I read the text, which will be 8 through 13, I want to read to you some quotes from one of the most famous preachers in the United States, and then I want to read the text, all right? These are all direct quotations. I won't tell you who it is. You'll probably guess. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, and to fulfill the destiny He has laid out for us. When you focus on being a blessing, God makes sure that you will always be blessed in abundance. So do all you can to make your dreams come true. If God's will, it's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty, it's God's will for you to pay your bills and not be in debt. I could go on, by the way, and you could hear worse things. Now, I want you to hear the Apostle Paul. This is better, by the way, just in case you didn't know. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, You are already filled. You have already become rich. You've become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We've become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Verse 14. Do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Well, you can probably see that there's quite a bit of contrast between the quotes of the popular preacher and the Apostle Paul. And in fact, as we come to this this paragraph, um, this paragraph is filled not only with uh, really biting ironies, but it's also filled with sarcasm. And uh, if, if you can't see the sarcasm in this, it's because you're probably too much of an anti-sarcasm prude. 
because it is all the way through the paragraph. The paragraph actually is designed to sting the Corinthians. Uh, it is designed to... Uh, now, now, Paul says in verse 14, I don't write these things to shame you, but you have to understand that that's sort of a, maybe an overstatement uh, because he does write these things to bring them conviction and a, a level of, of uh, sort of a reality check. And so uh, the paragraph is designed to show how far they actually have, have uh, how far away they are from 4-7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? So we saw that last week that all is of grace. Paul's writing to show them that they are so far from a, what we could call a grace orientation, which means that they're actually miles away from a cross-centered orientation to life. They, they had come to think that, that too much of the not yet was already theirs. They come to think that... that um, that that which was, uh, is to come, the future, what we call eschatology, that, that they had actually somehow so entered into that new age that they were literally just um, uh, almost there with the angels. And so as Paul is dealing with them, you might remember last week we noted that Paul was sort of subtly dealing with them, sort of using himself and Apollos as an example and sort of subtly making his point. Well, now there's no more subtlety. All subtlety is thrown out the window. And with that enters Donald Gordon Alfred Strachan. How how appropriate. All subtlety is thrown out the window and in walks Don. Now, (laughs) so... Paul is, has not only thrown out all subtlety, he's now um, using the nuclear option, if you will, all right? He is going to be brutally honest with these Corinthians, and in a sense, the subtlety is over, the gloves are off, and Paul, uh, Paul basically looks at this as the time to choke them out. That's what he's going to do. Now, in order to understand what's actually happening, I put that little chart that you've seen a hundred times in your notes of the already and the not yet, because it's kind of helpful to have a sense of what Paul is doing in this section and what the Corinthians were, were probably doing. And you, you notice in the little chart, you have this age, right? You see that, this age, and then you see the age to come right? Now, this age is, of course, this present evil age. It's the age that's marked by sin and death and law, right? It's the age that's marked by Adam. It's the age that's marked by the old creation. So you have this age, but then you have the age to come. And uh, from, from an Old Testament perspective, the age to come is the age of the new heavens and the new earth, all right? It's the age in which uh, you go from old creation to new creation. It's the age where you go from, uh, from the flesh to the spirit. It's the age where you go from Adam to Messiah. It's the age that is, uh, that is renewed and it's marked by, uh, by life and freedom. And, and, and 
here's the amazing thing is that these two ages have been brought into a, a, a relationship through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so what, what happens in the what, what, what we sometimes call the Christ events, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, what has happened is that the age to come has invaded this present age. Okay? But what that now means is not that we are fully in the age to come. What it means is that we live now in, uh, in the tension between the already and the not yet. And that tension is a tension between this present evil age and the age to come. And so we live between the first and second coming of Jesus. And because of that, we are a people that live with incredible tension and, in fact, sometimes conflict. So uh, are you... Are you a new creation in Christ? Yes. Why are you a new creation in Christ? Because in Jesus, you are a part of the age to come. Okay? We sometimes think of new creation just in terms of a sort of like personal inward renewal. When Paul says you're a new creation, he's saying you're a person of the coming age right now. So you're a new creation, so I suppose that means you have no more flesh, right? Oh, you only could wish that was true, right? So you have the Holy Spirit in you as a part of the new creation, but you still also have the flesh. And what does Paul tell us? Well, the flesh wages war against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, so you don't do the things that you want to do because these two are in opposition to each other. That is, in a sense, the fundamental tension of living between the already and the not yet. So when we talk about the already, we're talking about, in a sense, two things. We're talking about that which is future that has invaded the present, right? So... So, for instance, the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling Holy Spirit, okay? That's a part of the age to come. And and yet it's mine right now, already, okay? But there's also the not yet. There are elements that we have not yet experienced. So we still sin. Our bodies still get old and decay, Get ready to die. Okay? Uh, so we've not, for instance, been bodily resurrected. Okay? So there is, this, there is this tension between the already and the not yet that we presently live in. Now, I think that what Paul's doing in this passage is he is addressing the Corinthians' fundamental mistake, which they had um, what we could call an over-spiritualized or an over-realized eschatology. In other words, they thought too much of the not yet was theirs already. Does that make sense? Now, th- th- there, are, there have always been people that have had this um, faulty view. So, for instance, people that have argued for sinless perfection. They would be arguing for something that is in the not yet, and they're saying that it's right now. Um, in a sense, and I've noted this before, the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, um, 
is, uh, in, a, in a perverted sense, too much of the already or the not yet in the already, okay? In, in other words, to say God's will for you is to be completely healthy. Is there coming a day when you will be completely healthy? And the answer is yes. When you receive a resurrected, glorified body, you'll never get the flu ever again. You'll never have to worry about cancer. You'll never have to worry about dying. And so there is coming a day where part of our redemption, once it is consummated, will be perfect and complete health forever, right? Well, that's part of the not yet. It's not part of the already. It's not yours yet. We get gray hair. We go bald. We get fat. We get saggy. We get, it's true, you'll you'll be there in no time. And, I mean, it's hard to believe when you're like 18, 19 years old, but it's just true, right? Um, I used to laugh at my dad because he had love handles, and now guess who laughs at me? Anyway, so the, the Corinthians just, they just thought that they were so gifted and had so much of the Spirit that, that they really were, um, in a sense, just beyond this present age. What Paul's going to do is Paul's going to, in a sense, give them a reality check, and he's going to once again use himself and the apostles to say, you know what, we're actually still a part of this age too, and this age is marked by tribulation and persecution and opposition and hostility and poverty and homelessness and getting beat up for the gospel. This is going to be, in a sense, Paul's effort to kind of bring the Corinthians back into a realistic perspective, okay? Because the fact is, is that people all over the world believe God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money and to fulfill the destiny he's laid out for us. There's lots of people that believe that. So let's notice Paul's sarcasm. Verse 8. Paul says, you are already filled. Now, you you actually can't miss the emphasis with with the word already, right? You are filled right now. Now, Paul, of course, is being sarcastic, he's, he's speaking in terms of irony because the Corinthians were fully convinced that, um, that they were in the not yet. They were fully convinced that, that they had everything, everything that they needed. Gordon Fee says, theirs is one of already with little room for the not yet. And so Paul says, you're already filled. The idea that literally the word means to, um, to have become full, to eat to the full, to be glutted. That's the, what the literal meaning of the word is. But the word's often used metaphorically for to have all that you want, to be totally satisfied. And so Paul says, in a sense, to the Corinthians, uh, you, you think, now this is how, how it should go, right? You think that you are already there. You think you've already arrived. You think you're already completely satisfied. Notice the second. You 
have already become rich. And of course, Paul's not speaking here in, in terms of um, uh, worldly or material wealth. Um, but by the way, uh, there probably were like health and wealth people in the early early centuries, um, and the Corinthians have tinges of that. But but to say that God actually just wanted you to have lots of money would have actually just sounded so crass, right? And yet today, it's you know God wants me to have a you know a four hundred million dollar jet. But when Paul says, you have already become rich, I think that the the metaphor going back to the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 5, is the idea of gifts of the Spirit. And so you've already become filled. You're already rich. The idea is you have all that you think you have all the wisdom, all the gifts, all of the Spirit that, that you can possibly have. You're already so full, so satisfied, so overwhelmingly wealthy. And then Paul says this, and this is how you know, this is absolute and utter sarcasm, is he says, you have become kings without us. The, uh, the, the phrase, become kings, probably is better translated as, uh, you have begun to rule, you've begun to reign. Now, now, to be sure, Paul's talking in, in the sense of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is both an already not yet reality, but for the Corinthians, they thought, we're already reigning. We've, we've already taken dominion. The kingdom has already fully come for us. Paul says, you think you're kings right now? You think you're seated on little thrones right now? You're ruling right now? And then, and then Paul says this, without us. Now, Paul does not mean, as some translations misleadingly say, uh, without our help. You have begun to reign without our help. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul's actually saying something like this. You have begun to reign as kings without us even sharing in that reign with you. In other words, you Corinthians, you are so awesome, you have even left us behind. You've begun to reign and you've begun to reign without even us apostles. And then Paul says, and this is, so uh, think of him ratcheting up the sarcasm with each line, okay? And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. Now, this line is actually uh, the the most sarcastic of all because uh, it's as if Paul's saying something like this. You know, you think you've already arrived. You think you've already become wealthy. You think you've already become kings and that without us. You know what? I wish you really would have become kings. So that way we might be able to join in with you. In other words, Paul's saying, I wish the kingdom was actually here in its fullness and your reign had already started because that way we'd have a chance to reign with you instead of being beaten up and, and uh, imprisoned and battered around for the gospel. 
man, if, 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 if only you had really started to reign and we were co-reigning with you, then we wouldn't have to suffer so much. Of course, this is not the case. Paul's sarcasm is drawing out the point that, that, that you think, Corinthians, that, that you've attained this level, that, that you are actually kings right now. And the, the fact is, is that here we are as apostles suffering, experiencing tribulation, going through hardships. So this is what the Corinthians are are saying. We're, We're satisfied, we're satiated. We've become rich. We've become kings. That's there already, okay? Now look at the apostles already in verse 9. Paul says, For I think... God has exhibited us apostles, least of all, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now, you, you, you can't help actually but to feel this, this incredible contrast. So here's the Corinthians. And again, I'm just going to say this over and over. You've become satisfied. You have become absolutely full. You've become rich. You've become kings. Now, what about us apostles? I think that God has put us apostles on display. I think he's made an exhibition of us apostles as last of all. Now, when Paul says last of all, he's not saying that God has put the apostles um, on display as the least of all men. He's actually saying something uh, quite a bit more technical than that. Uh, Paul has in mind here, when he says last of all, he's actually referring in the next line, as men condemned to death is going to underscore this. What he has in view here is, is um, is the triumphant parade that would take place when a general went and conquered a people. And uh, so in the event of war, the conquering general would then have prisoners of war. And the the very, very common occurrence in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, is that that general would, would have a triumphal procession back into his town, which would be, in a sense, his big you know, a ticker tape parade for the citizens of his town. And in his train, in following him, would be people who had been taken captive in the war. And they would lead them in an act of humiliation, public humiliation. But the last of those who were being put on display, the last in that line actually were those who were condemned to die in the arena. So not all prisoners of war were going to be uh, led to their death in the arena, but those who were the last, 
They were the ones who were condemned to die. And what that would look like would be this, is you would have however many uh, who would be uh, led in this triumphal procession, triumphal for the conquering general, not the captives, and they would be led in that triumphal procession, and those at the end of the line would either be thrown to the beasts in the arena or would be thrown in with the gladiators in the arena. Either way, it was certain death. Paul says, God has put us apostles on display as an exhibition as those who are condemned to die. Now, if you just for a second turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to, I've pointed this out in, in, in other contexts, but uh, this, this whole picture actually clarifies something that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, verse 14, Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now, actually going back to the time of Calvin, Calvin um, uh, misinterpreted this text and actually set in motion a tradition of interpretation that basically looked like this, is God's leading us in his triumph in Christ. That was Paul is being led on as triumphant in Christ. That's not the picture that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He says God leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and that is the idea of those who have been taken captive who are being led to death. That's how Paul understood apostolic ministry. Apostolic ministry was not this glorious, triumphant ministry where, um, you know, you you wore nice suits and had big crowds and everybody loved you. For Paul, apostolic ministry was not ministry where, where you actually got a really nice salary and had a really nice chariot and people just, just fawned over you. For Paul, apostolic ministry meant this. I am a captive to Jesus Christ. He is the conquering general. I am the conquered. And now as his captive, as his slave, I am being led in this ministry. And the ultimate end to this ministry is death. Paul saw his calling not only to preach the gospel, but to suffer for the gospel, and even ultimately to die for the sake of the gospel. We, we really, we have some, some profoundly misguided views of ministry and apostolic ministry in particular. Paul says, this is, this is, you know, here you are, you're kings, you're full, you're rich. You know, we are, we're the guys at the end of the line that are being brought in in triumphal procession. They're going to end up fighting wild beasts or a gladiator. And God's the one that's put us on display like that. Notice it's not the devil. 
It's not the devil that's put us on display as those condemned to die. It's God himself. You see, this this actually flies in the face of the Corinthians' triumphal, over-spiritualized view of the Christian life. Here they are thinking in these great and glorious lofty terms. And Paul says, listen, our message is, is not the message of triumph and glory. Our message is the message of the cross. And the cross means suffering and death. Period. That's the message of the cross. And so when Jesus calls somebody to follow him, what does he say? Pick up your cross pick up the instrument by the way that was not the idea of you know pick up your burdens and follow me i know that mother-in-law is so tough just pick up your cross follow me i know that foreman is so mean pick up your cross follow me no the, the idea of the cross was an instrument of execution And a person carrying a cross was being led to death. Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow after me, he needs to do what? Deny self, not just deny self of things. Deny yourself of chocolate. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about deny self. Self is no longer king. Jesus is king. Pick up your cross. Pick up your instrument of execution that will lead to your death and follow me. You understand that the, the, the true message of the gospel is not really very popular in American culture. We don't hear the radical call of a cross-centered life and obedience, do we? What do we hear? We hear a Corinthianized gospel. I'm full, I'm fat, I'm happy, I'm rich, I'm a king. Paul says, I'm a captive. Condemned to die. Well, he goes on. Because we have become a spectacle to the world. Now, the, uh, the word spectacle here is where we get our word theater. Okay? And the picture is to be put on, you could say it this way, to be put on theatrical display. To be stared at, to to be jeered, to be harassed. And so Paul says, we've become a spectacle to the world. In fact, what God's doing through us apostles, uh, boy, you Corinthians, you really have it made. You guys are kings. We're condemned to death. We're the spectacles of the world. People look at us and marvel in disgust. People look at us, they don't esteem us. They don't don't look at us with with any kind of respect. They look at us as a public spectacle. And this is all a part of God's doing. And notice, both to angels and to men. In in, in a sense, there's this this, both this human and cosmic element. And um, by the way, Paul's going to mention angels three times in 1 Corinthians. And each time... There is this sense of of angels um, watching what God's people are doing. 
And so God has put the apostles on exhibit as the last of the line, slated to die in the arena as a public spectacle to absolutely everybody. You know what the apostles were like? Unfortunately, with, um, with the advent of cell phones that can take video, there, over the last number of years, just a number of videos uh, from Islamic countries, uh, even uh, among Hindu people, of just brutal, vicious attacks on Christians. And some of you have seen those. And if you haven't, they are incredibly hard to watch, but you should watch them. To see an entire village drag a man out of his home and beat him mercilessly. Um, Paul says, when the world looks at us, doesn't look at us and say what educated, sophisticated, refined, spiritual men. The world looks at us and says, what a disgusting public spectacle worthy of death. It's a far cry from, this is my Bible, I am what it says I am, I can do what it says I can do. It's a far cry from the nonsense that we hear today. So here are the Corinthians, Paul, Paul, is, uh, Paul is just poking them right in the eye. And then what Paul does in verse 10 is he ends up contrasting the two. So he's talked about the Corinthians already and, and the apostles already. So this is, you know, this is what you think your reality is. Here's what I know our reality is. Now let's contrast the two. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to contrast folly and wisdom, weakness and power, glory and honor. Has he ever done that before? Has he made those contrasts before? The answer is yes, back in chapter 1. Those are the exact contrasts that he has made. And in fact, um, the foolishness of God, right, is real wisdom. And the weakness of God is real power. Remember, remember um, Paul's perspective is that really God has turned the world upside down. So what looks like weakness, i.e. crucifixion, is really power. And what looks like folly is real wisdom. But the corollary is true too. What the world perceives as wisdom is actually foolishness with God. And what the world perceives as power is absolute weakness before God. Right? And so, the, so the, in a sense, the gospel turns this world order upside down on its head. And then notice how Paul is now going to uh, deal with the Corinthians. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise, you're prudent in Christ. Did Paul actually think that he was a fool in the biblical sense? Not at all. 
Was he a fool from the world's perspective? You better believe it. And by the way, if you are a real Christian, the world will look at you as a fool. Okay? You believe an old book, and you follow a Jewish Messiah that you say was crucified for your sins and raised from the dead. You're an idiot. Right? That's what the world says. Right? Right? That's what the world says. The world says, you are the biggest moron on the planet. If you want to believe in the ethics of Jesus, that's fine. Turn the other cheek. Good. Uh, you know, love your neighbor. Great. But to actually think that this book is authoritative over your life and that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead and is coming back again, you are to be pitied. You should, you should be in a home. You should be in a facility. You should have people taking care of you because you're obviously insane. Paul says, we're fools for Christ's sake. And, and in fact, we're gladly fools for Christ's sake. And then he turns around and he says, but you, Corinthians, you are so wise. You're so prudent. You are so reasonable in Christ. Of course, you know what he's saying here is, well, just as sure as the world looks at us as fools for Christ's sake, you are so wonderfully wise in your own perception. What we would say is something like this. The Corinthians were legends in their own minds. What has Paul already said about wisdom and folly? Well, we've already said that. So notice again, we are weak, but you are strong. You know, the amazing thing from Paul's perspective about weakness is that he understood, as, as, as you can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that, that when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong, right? And so the, the whole idea of weakness, the very weakness of God, what is the weakness of God? Going back to chapter 1, it's the cross, it is this message crucified in weakness. You have to understand there is nothing, Paul is, is so clear about this, there is nothing that is amazingly impressive about the gospel message. It's about the cross and it's about the, the shame of the cross and it's about the weakness of the cross and it's about crucifixion which Jews looked at as an absolute stumbling block. Greeks looked at it as absolute foolishness but it is that very message which is the wisdom and the power of God. And so Paul says we're weak. We, we would have something similar to this in, in our culture, right? When, when you hear people say something like, um, well, faith is a crutch for weak people. Do you agree? I don't. 
I think faith is a stretcher for nearly dead people. Right? This is, I mean, to me, faith is a crutch for weak people. That's an understatement, buddy. I don't need a crutch. I need a stretcher. And I'm not ashamed to admit it. I'm weak because I'm fallen. I'm weak because I'm sinful. I'm weak because I am a part of this present age which is passing away. And so weakness is just a part of who I am. But you know what? God actually comes to us and he comes to us not in the impressive power of kings and princes and governors and dominions and authorities. He comes to us in the very weakness of the cross. And so I'm okay with weakness. I'm good with weakness. Paul says, we're weak. But you're so strong. I love it when you flex. Your muscles are so big. Calvin's about the age where I'm going to be able to teach him the world is not square, but it's round and the beach is that way. That's the Corinthians. So impressive. But what is it? What is there impressive about their strength? They're only impressed by themselves. By the way, if you are the only person who's impressed with you, that's not all that impressive. Remember what Paul says back in chapter 1. Not many mighty, right? Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble or well-born. Remember that? Now notice the next line. You are, New American Standard here says distinguished. That's, I don't like that. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Actually, it's a, it's a play on words for the word glory and then honor. You could, you could put it something like this. Uh, we wouldn't translate it this way, but this makes the point. You are glorious. You are esteemed. You are respected. You are honored. Of course, in your own eyes. We are without honor. You are just all about the glory, and we're just dishonored. We have no respect. So Paul is, what's Paul doing is Paul's driving home what he's already expounded on back in chapter one, that God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the, the, the strong. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the things of the world which are not So that he can baffle the things that are. In other words, God's way of doing things is he's chosen the nothings and the nobodies to confound the somethings and the somebodies. And the problem here is that the Corinthians were really hung up on wanting to be the somethings and the somebodies. And Paul says, listen, the minute that you, that you bow your knee at the foot of the cross, that is gone. You're now the nothings and the nobodies. And you ought, to, you ought to revel in that. Because 
To be something and somebody, to be a something and a somebody in the world's eyes is nothing. This age is passing away. Who cares what the world thinks? Who cares what the world thinks is impressive? Who cares what the world magnifies, honors, and respects? They're blinded by the God of this age. What do they know? I mean, when when the first lady's hero is Beyonce, you know that this is a really messed up world. All the old people are like, what? It's all right. I used a contemporary illustration, right? And so Paul says, weak, dishonored, but you Corinthians, wow. But you're forgetting not many mighty, not many... Not many wise, not many noble, well-born. God's chosen the weak things of the world. You've forgotten all about that. That's why Paul's okay with being weak and dishonored. God delights to pick people like that, use people like that. Aren't you glad? Verses 11 to 13. Here, uh, Paul, in a sense, sort of brings his argument into, into the ethical realm, he says, to this present hour. So, by the way, there's, there's, um, there's a not-so-subtle play off of the already's in verse 9. You're already satiated. You're already rich. You're already kings. Well, we're already, we're to this very present out right now. Here's what we are. You ready? Hungry and thirsty. Um, What Paul's going to do is this list is actually going to be a direct contrast to their own self-claims. And so so they claim to be full. Paul's going to claim to be hungry and thirsty. They claim to be rich. Paul's going to claim to be poorly clothed and homeless. They claim to be kings to reign. Paul's going to say, we're badly treated and we toil working with our hands. Here is Paul's life as an apostle. He didn't get a jet. He didn't live in a gated community. He knew what it was to be deprived even of the basics of life. Right? Philippians 4, knew how to get along in what? both in lack and in plenty. Paul knew what it was to be hungry. Paul knew what it was to actually be deprived. And then he turns around and he says, so to this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty and we're poorly clothed, ragged clothing, destitute, so we're deprived, we're destitute, we're roughly treated. That is the idea that we're beaten, we're brutally treated, we're knocked around for the sake of the gospel. You know, we, we really are incredible sissies, aren't we? I mean, we are sissies. You know, we, we, we go and file suit with, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the whatever, the ACJL or whatever, when somebody says, hey, you can't put that Bible verse calendar on your desk. Wait, ah, the persecution. Paul says, we, we get knocked around and beat up because of the gospel. 
you ought to read church history. Read John Wesley and George Whitfield and Howell Harris. John Wesley gets to, up to preach and is all open air preaching. And he has a little scaffold that he stands on to preach. And, and uh, by the way, he wouldn't have ever done open air preaching if it weren't for George Whitfield's influence. And there he is preaching in the open air to the crowds. And Wesley will say, today while I was preaching, somebody stood up opposite of me uh, or climbed up a tree opposite of me and started blowing a trumpet while I was trying to preach. And then somebody threw an egg, and then a rock, and then a dead cat. I've never had a dead cat thrown at me while I was preaching. Every once in a while, some of the inmates get a little um, rude with us, but that's about it. I've never been. Hal Harris is preaching in the open air. And uh, while he was preaching, somebody threw a brick and hit him in the head, knocked him unconscious, and he suffered brain damage for the rest of his ministry. What happens to us? Anybody ever punch you in the face for sharing the gospel with them? Anybody ever grab you around the throat and start to choke you because you told them about Jesus? Paul says, you know, we get knocked around. We get brutalized for the gospel's sake. He says, and we're homeless. <laughs> you know what this part is, right? So you get the kingdom living now. Homelessness. Kingdom now prosperity. I don't even rent. And then he says, we toil. Working with our own hands. Working hard. Living by the very sweat of his brow. Which, by the way, there's, there, there's a couple of things there that Paul's probably alluding to. One is, um, guess what? If you toil working with your hands, you still live in a fallen world. But he's also pointing out the fact that he labored by the sweat of his own brow for his daily bread. Sure, people would send him money and try to help him, and he looked forward to his companions coming so that he could be freed up to to spend more time in the work of the gospel. But uh, when Paul says, we toil, we labor to exhaustion, working with our own hands, you know what Paul's saying is, "You you might have begun to reign, but not us. Kings don't work like this. Then he says, when we are reviled, we bless. You have to understand that what Paul's doing now is he's saying, okay, so, so this, is, this is what it is to live in this present evil age, to live in this tension of the already and the not yet, to live right now at this very hour. This is what this very hour living looks like for us. And, and, and now I want to tell you, Corinthians, how we actually respond to that world that is so hostile to us. So when we are reviled, when we are slandered, we bless. Straight from Luke 6.28. 
we're not, we're not very good at this part, are we? Slandered, reviled. What do we normally do? We don't usually turn around and bless in return, do we? He says, when we're persecuted, we whine. Right? Is that what your version says? When we're persecuted, we whine. We cry. When we're persecuted, we protest. When we're persecuted, we boycott. When we're persecuted, we post things on Facebook. Paul says, when we're persecuted, we endure. We endure. Again, you know what ends up happening with these these, um, uh, responses of living in this present evil age is Paul's saying, listen, you know, you think that, that, that you're uh, up here and you're reigning and you're satiated and you've already arrived. Well, here's what our life is like. People slander us, people persecute us. And, and, and you know what we do? We don't call down thunder out of heaven. We actually just endure. Why? Jesus told us this was going to happen. Why in the world should we be surprised when we're persecuted? Why in the world should we be surprised when we face hostility? Jesus said if they hated you or hated me, they're going to hate you. A student is not above his master. I wonder if we actually preached the gospel like this. How many people would say, oh, I'll pray with you. Follow Jesus and be persecuted. Follow Jesus and be hated. Follow Jesus and have the world look down on you. When we're persecuted, we endure. Now, that's not specifically in any of Jesus' teaching, but it certainly was his own example, wasn't it? He was persecuted, and what did he do? He endured. He endured even to death, even the death of the cross. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. That is when we're defamed, when we're, when we're insulted. Paul says, uh, now it's kind of interesting, the word conciliate, is, it's, it's actually the word that we usually translate encourage. And so some of the translators try to wrestle with, with the way in which these, uh, is, is, the words are paired up to be uh, slandered and then to uh, encourage. What does that look like? Well, when we're slandered, you know what we do in return? We actually speak kindly. We entreat people. In fact, maybe even the idea of console. But here's, here's the bottom line. When we're slandered, when we're insulted, when we're reviled, we do not reply in kind. That's not what we do as Christians. 
So the ethics of the cross is, is actually a radical antithesis. And, and, and where do we see this played out? Where, well, Paul in Romans 12, um, Roman, yeah, Romans 12, uh, 17 to 21, where he tells us what? Never ever return evil for evil. You return good for evil. And if you find that your enemy is, is, is hungry, you feed him. And in fact, you're to be at peace with all men. Insofar as it depends on you whenever possible. Don't take your own vengeance. Leave that to God. Do good when people mistreat you. This is, this is so absolutely contrary to our own nature, isn't it? And yet this is what Jesus calls us to. And you know what we've done is we, we've, we're, we're actually more like the Corinthians than we want to admit. We've domesticated the gospel, we have, we've westernized the gospel, we've Americanized the gospel, and we've turned it into this, into this neat thing that fits comfortably in our lives, and there's nothing comfortable about the gospel. There's nothing comfortable about Christianity. There's nothing that actually sinks really well with my heart. It actually requires radical surgery again and again and again because my reaction is if I'm insulted, I, I can insult right back and do better. And that's not what Christians do. And if I get knocked around for the, with, for the gospel... You know, at that point, you kind of want to go back and say, well, you know, Lord, you, you had him kill the Canaanites. Can't I at least punch this guy? No. No. And so you see what Paul's doing is Paul's actually pointing out this, this radical antithesis and the Corinthians, are, the Corinthians have imbibed a worldliness which they in turn have imposed upon the gospel so that it's not even the gospel. And isn't that what we're tempted to do all the time? Now this last part, Clearly, Paul, Paul has low self-esteem. You guys are either really sleepy or think that I'm serious. If you think that I'm serious, then you haven't been around for more than three minutes. We've become as the scum of the world. Now, Paul, you're going to have to go to sensitivity training because you just, you don't talk about yourself that way. You talk about yourself that way, people are going to think you're a little off. This is a true story. Missionary uh, couple, 
that I know, wanted to become missionaries. And they went through all the training. And this man and his wife read a lot of the Puritans. They loved the Puritans. And um, when they went to the mission agency, they went through their psychological evaluation. And they were turned down by the mission agency because they had low self-esteem. Can you imagine? Mission agency sitting there, committees talking to Paul. So Paul, tell us, why, why do you want to be a missionary? Well, I'm the scum of the earth. Paul, what, what do you mean by that? I'm the dregs of all things. <laughs> so you have to understand, again, the, the, the idea, we've become the scum of the world. The, the, the way that the world looks at us is, here, here it is, we are refuse. You know, that's a nice word for we're scum, we're rubbish, we're, we're the dirt that's removed as a result of something being cleaned. One commentator says, these terms refer to the very worst possible degradation, filth that is gotten rid of through the gutter or the sink. Have you ever had to take the drain off of your shower and and because um, the shower's backing up, you know what I'm talking about. And, and so you take a wire hanger and make a little hook on the end and stick it down there to see what's, and you start to pull up, and you know what's coming up. Okay, so I, I have, uh, I gag easily. This is, this is a surefire way to make me gag. I'll pull up that, that big blob of, of Ariel's hair, and it's not mine. I know that. And the thing is, is that it's not just hair. It's like nasty, disgusting, scummy hair. Okay? Right? That's why Ray does it, right? And Ray doesn't have any hair. So that's not fair. <laughs> Paul, Paul says, we're the stuff that gets cleaned out of the grease trap. You ever work in a restaurant? Clean the grease trap? Yum, right? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's reuse that. <laughs> Paul says, this is what we are. We, we are the stuff that gets stuck in the drain. We're the stuff that's, that, that, that is pulled out. We're the stuff that's, that's scraped off. We're the very dregs. So, by the way, if scum is bad, dregs is just worse. Because scum is scum, but dregs, that's the lowest scum. So you've got scum, and then you've got scum scum. And so Paul says, right, even until now, this is what we are. It's kind of interesting how he, he, he puts those bookends, even until now, at the beginning. And so this is our present reality. We're the dregs. 
My goodness. So if you're the Corinthians, what's Paul's goal in all of this? Paul's goal is to get you to stop thinking, we're so full, we're so rich, we're so awesome, we reign. He, Paul wants them to stop that, and he's trying to show them, listen, this is what it is to live a cross-centered life in this present age. Now, let me just tell you, the Corinthians will not get it, but they should have. I wonder why they didn't get it. You know, we can be so attached to our easy lives and so attached to our easy Christianity and so attached to our affluence and so attached to our things that it makes this kind of Christianity seem very unpalatable to us. Paul's contrast is meant to convict the Corinthians of their ridiculous pride. He's trying to show them that that, that in this present age, suffering and tribulation is our lot. You understand the Great Tribulation is a seven-year period. It's at least right now a 2,000-year period. You understand that our lack of tribulation is just an anomaly in church history? Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's trying to show them that that really a... So this phrase that we've used, cruciform life, so cross-shaped life, what that looks like is it looks more like the suffering servant than the triumphant servant. The cruciform life looks more like the sacrificial lamb instead of the reigning lion. There is is a sense of suffering and tribulation and death for us in this present age. And Jesus actually is the one that set the pattern. Doesn't he tell the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Son of Man must first suffer and then enter into his glory. The cross precedes the crown. Suffering precedes glory. And no Christian is exempt. And the Corinthians, the Corinthians thought, boom, we're saved. We get to skip this and jump over to the not yet. David Garland, I thought this was terrific. He says, the Christian life is not a fast track to glory, but a slow, arduous path that takes one through suffering. The suffering so visible in the lives of the apostles is not some tedious detour for an elite volunteer corps, but the main highway for all Christians. By contrasting the cross-centered lifestyles of the apostles with the Corinthians' vain glory... Paul hopes to supplant their egotism with the wisdom of the cross. So brothers and sisters, the wisdom of the cross is not the wisdom of this world, right? And the power of the cross is not the power of this world. 
And if you're going to embrace the true wisdom and power of God that is in the cross, then what it means is that you embrace suffering and tribulation, not triumph and glory. I was thinking about this today, about how how a person's eschatology, that is their view of the present and the future, how they fit together, a person's eschatology radically affects their ethics the way that they see they're supposed to live right now. And for Paul, the idea of the not yet, that's what you look forward to. Your your best life isn't now. It's later. It's heaven. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It's glory, but that's that's the future. If you have this triumphalism that, that thinks all of the glory is now, then you're going to be filled with pride and ego and superiority. But a cross-shaped life, a cruciform life, is a life of humility and one that's oriented towards other people. It's a life that fully embraces that whatever suffering God has for us in this present life, is a part of this present life. And if Jesus endured, then we should too. If the Son of God yielded himself to the suffering and tribulation of this fallen world, who are we to think that we should escape? And so to embrace Christ and his cross is to say, not, I want to be first in line, but I'm content with being at the end of the line. Even if it means being brought into the arena as God's spectacle. There's an old Puritan by the name of Christopher Love. Christopher Love was interesting Puritan for sure. He was arrested during the reign of Oliver Cromwell. And he was arrested because he was in, I think, the wrong place at the wrong time. There was a movement within England to want to put the, to put, uh, the king back on the throne. Okay? Cromwell had actually executed the king, but his son was in Scotland, and there was a movement of wanting to bring him back. They, they were royalists, and... and um, Christopher Love was accused of being a royalist, and he was imprisoned. And the story of his wife trying to get him released is a heartbreaking story. But he writes in one of his letters to his wife, Here I am, a spectacle unto God. He has deemed it so. May we all be content with whatever spectacle God has ordained we be. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that this is not um, fun stuff or popular stuff, but it's true stuff. 
And we pray that our own hearts and minds would be shaped and sanctified by the truth of your word. Father, we pray that even tomorrow, as we're with family members and around the table, and we pray, Father, that we wouldn't mind at all being weak and being a fool for Christ's sake, even being dishonored. Father, we pray that we would embrace this part of our calling And we would embrace it with much more enthusiasm than we presently have. Father, may we see that it really is an honor to suffer for the sake of his name. We pray this in the name of the one who suffered more than any of us. Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.